day about managing up and I was like giving my my point of view on, on managing up and how to how to manage up effectively and I, I just realized now I didn't have a clue about what managing up means so I was giving giving all these thoughts on managing up and I didn't have a clue so I thought managing up was when there's a subordinate who's in charge of like keeping people above him in the hierarchy on track but that's not really what managing up is all about like managing up is managing your boss to boost your career so in essence it's operating with your boss's best interests at heart so recognizing that you're dependent on each other that boss needs your cooperation reliability and honesty and you need them to set priorities and to get resources and to give you a check and uh, provide a, a you know positive place to to work so i was just doing all this reading i'm managing up apparently there was a big uh, big article in harvard business Re review in 1980 about how to manage your boss so there i was giving all these opinions on managing up and i didn't even know what it meant so it got me thinking like how many times have you been fired in your life so for me the first first few jobs i had i got fired from from sixth grade i had my first job outside the house where i was getting paid working for someone uh, from sixth grade through to 10th grade right i got fired from every job i ever held now that hasn't happened in in the last 10 years like that's you know i've, I've matured and uh that, that's not happening anyway but uh just kind of in awe of people who never get fired and who never fall out with a friend i feel like the volatility that probably comes from you know, someone having, say, high levels of neuroticism or uh, high levels of selfishness or being self-centered, the, the, these traits lead to both getting fired and falling out with friends and getting isolated and under-earning. So kind of in awe of those people who never get fired, never fall out with friends. Like, how do you do it? Because I've, I've had, like, way too much volatility <laughs> in my life. So I think uh, I think I want to know, man. Like Dennis Prager said on the radio, he's never lost a friend. So I remember I had a good friend in high school, and I wanted to aggressively report a story about our high school's sports teams and how that uh, they were they were cutting corners and and doing you know in all likelihood illegal behavior to ensure the success of the sports team but uh, I, I fell out with my friend who had the attitude you should not investigate y your own high school right why would you want to do that so uh, all sorts of times when I've done investigative work it's it's offended uh, offended my friends so I convert to Orthodox Judaism but that doesn't mean that uh, I don't find that there are important stories to investigate within the Orthodox Jewish community, and that then has, has put a strain on, on friendships. So there have been various rabbis who I've really liked, and then I found out that they were predatory, either sexually or financially. So pretty much every charismatic rabbi that I've encountered has 
has been predatory. <laughs> like the, the rabbis that I've most wanted to devote myself to and, and to follow and be their Talmudim, be their, be their students, be their followers, uh, turned out to have something crooked going on. So maybe maybe the, the traits of stability, right? That, that leads to maintaining friendships and, and not getting fired. But uh, maybe, maybe there are some good sides. Maybe my, my high openness to new experience is, is, is led to a, a very varied and, and constantly challenging and changing life which does not produce uh, stability in, in relationships. So we've got, uh, we've got a viewer, very exciting news. Media Hits is in the chat room. And uh, Media Hits says, I'm watching David Cole Stein's Christmas video, Take a Break for You. Want the link to a woman from Melbourne in love with David Cole Stein? Sure, what, what's her channel? So. I remember I was getting interviewed by, by a journalist uh, a couple of years ago, and he says, oh, are you hanging out with David Cole Stein? I'm like, no, I, I'm not hanging out with, with David Cole Stein. So I, I've heard of him. He's, he's amusing at times, but uh, I, I guess we're both dissidents. We're, we're both uh, eccentrics, but no, not, not hanging out with David Cole Stein. But, uh, oh yeah, David Colstein uh, tweeted about me the other day. He says he hears that I'm obsessed with podcasts. He says, I don't know Luke Ford. I don't know Ford, but I hear he's obsessed with podcasts. My column's my job. I do it for a living. I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. I write. Hopefully some folks like it. I move on. I've no need to debate. I'm not an evangelist. I don't need folks to agree with me. Well, people don't read themselves. All right. Uh, David Colstein does not just write and hope that some people like it and then move on. All right, he's he's got an incredible need for admiration, as do most people who do the things that I do. All right, so so this would be like me saying, "Oh, I make videos, and then I've no need to debate. I'm not an evangelist. I don't need folks to agree with me." Right? He's not reading himself accurately. No one is writing regularly and making videos without a desire for admiration and without a desire to influence and, and affect people. So I'm rather skeptical of David Cole's claims here. And, and being, being a Holocaust denier is just, it's just pathological at, at the level that, that he participated in. So when people have normal levels of human connection, they don't have to read meaning into all sorts of events where meaning is not objectively there. But uh, let, me, let me find a better place for my phone set up here. Oh, man. Okay, nice, nice artwork. Thanks, mate. So, yeah, I, I painted these myself. I, I hope, you, hope you like them. So how many times have you been fired and how many friends have you fallen out with? I, I want to know. Because my life has been way too volatile uh, upon reflection. So I want to know, what are, what are the qualities of, of people who, who never get fired, ne never fall out with a friend? 
So it's not that I'm incapable of human relationship or working. Like I've, I've worked for people for more than five years, never gotten fired. I could work for them for, for life. And I've had friends from, from childhood. But uh, when, when I touch on controversial topics, particularly in a live stream or in a blog post, right, that, that can put a strain on friendships. I think social media puts a big strain on, on friendships. Like for someone that you like, and then you start reading their every innermost thought on social media, and it's like, ah, oh, I, I thought I liked this person, but he's disgusting. So I think social media has put a big strain on friendships, not to mention jobs, right? No employer wants to have an employee who's posting you know, reprehensible or offensive things online. Ah, g'day, Jim. How are you, mate? True Blue Jim Bowden in New South Wales. So I'm hanging out in Queensland. Wow, Media Hit says, if by falling out you mean an argument and then never talking again, then zero. Wow. So throw down in the chat how many times you've been fired and how many friends that you've fallen out with. Because uh, what, would, what would be the personality traits of people who get fired a lot? and who fall out with people. So it'd have to be like high levels of neuroticism and high levels of being disagreeable, right? So as you get older, you become more agreeable and you become more conscientious and you become less neurotic. Fired, you've never been fired. So usually if you're agreeable, conscientious and low in neuroticism, I would expect that uh, I would expect you wouldn't get fired so much. Uh, Glib Medley says, "I don't burn bridges, but I'm poor at upkeep." Right. So I, I notice from online media personalities that they they tend to have a disproportionate number of uh, who, who are into burning bridges. So I think. People who, who become online personalities, such as myself, you got to expect that there, there's something lacking in normal human connection. So that they're getting their, their connection needs met through going online, and then people who are lacking in normal human connection, that they are going to be less stable. Right? We get our stability from our connections with other people. We get we should normally get our meaning in life from our connections with other people. So I notice of the online personalities, just a huge amount are really into burning bridges as opposed to like in, in the normal corporate world or in the normal workaday world, you know, most normal people try to avoid burning bridges. <laughs> so uh, Media Hit says, I got fired right away during the first couple of weeks, telemarketing, fast food, all this in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah, it uh, takes takes some of us quite a while to to uh, grow up and 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 uh, learn to have more empathy for other people. I think if you have empathy for other people, you will sense you know what they need and you'll take that into account and then you'll be much less likely to blow up your relationship. So New South Wales is having a massive surge in Omicron COVID cases, so 5715 cases. So when I came here to New South Wales November 18th, 
New South Wales was having about 120 COVID cases a day. And now over the past week, it's been doubling and tripling pretty much every day. So New South Wales has a conservative premier. And he, he was highly reluctant to bring back mask mandates and to bring back uh, check-in codes. They, they do contact tracing very diligently here in Australia. And so this conservative premier and the conservative prime minister of Australia talk about personal responsibility. Uh, that's, that is the, the conservative approach to life that most questions can simply be solved with, with personal responsibility. And then the left-wing perspective is that uh, you need structural answers to many questions. So I think personal responsibility, yeah, that's going to be the, the prime, prime answer to questions that don't, to matters that don't have high externalities where other people aren't going to be affected. But when, when your choices have a tremendous effect on other people, then, then there are externalities to that transaction. So I've been disappointed by the right with, with regard to COVID. I, I think that they've, that they've shown themselves, generally speaking, to be inadequate to the occasion. Just reading an interesting academic study of pathogens and party lines, social conservatism positively associates, associates with COVID-19 precautions among U.S. Democrats, but not Republicans. So social liberals, meaning people on the left, tend to be less pathogen avoidant than social conservatives. So people on the left tend to be less uptight about homosexuality, gay marriage, uh, immigration, uh, and, and, uh, and general threat. So to be on the right means you have a, usually an above average reaction to threats and to pathogens, to, to, to filth, to, to disturbing art, to, to a dead you know, lizard on, on your path, like to, to be right wing is like, ah, right. So there are biological underpinnings to a political orientation. And you can basically sum it up by threat reactivity, right? The higher your threat reactivity, the more likely you are to be on the right. The lower your threat reactivity, the more likely you are to be on the left. So people on the right, they, they because they have high th threat reactivity, they're concerned about new ways of doing things, such as gay marriage, new forms of social organization. To be on the right means that because the world is a scary, dangerous place, sticking with traditional tried and true methods for organizing human life is, is safer. While people on the left think, no, we need to try new things and let's see what works and, and let's be open to new experiences. So people high in the personality trait of conscientiousness tend to be on the right. People high in the personality trait of openness to new experience tend to be on the left. Yes, chat, make sure your N95 mask is properly fitted before you, before you post. So we just brought in uh, restrictions, massive restrictions in Queensland. So all indoor places that are public gatherings need to wear masks. And so this is even happening in Tenham Sands, even in regional Australia, in regional Queensland, people are wearing masks for the first time. High levels of pattern recognition and high levels of immunity to cognitive dissonance could account for being repellent to the mass hysteria. Right, so there are all sorts of patterns that we're not supposed to recognize and not supposed to comment on. 
and uh, if you if you do recognize and comment on patterns that you're not supposed to comment on, then you become a dissident. So Johnny Anomaly, the professor who's a friend of Nathan Kaufman's, just did a big long talk on on uh, academic uh, speech restrictions. So I'll throw down a link to that. So. Nathan Kofnus, who did the big Kevin McDonald debunking, he says that uh, new talk by Johnny Anomaly about groupthink in universities. Conformity in the cathedral causes and consequences. And so conformity means we don't notice patterns. But uh, pathogens, you would expect people on the right would have a stronger reaction to threat, such as pathogens, such as COVID-19. So so the, the biological essence of, of people's politics is threat reactivity. If you have a strong reaction to a threat, then you're more likely to be on the right. If you have a higher openness to new experience and you don't see you know, threats all around, then you're more likely to be on the less, left. So it seems to be a contradiction. Normally, social conservatism aligns with pathogen avoidance. Right, social conservatism aligns with pathogen avoidance, but the more socially conservative political parties in the United States, and in England, and in Australia, have been the least restrictive with regard and the least frightened of COVID. So how come? Because normally threat reactivity leads to right-wing politics. So the answer, according to this academic study, is that it's different sources of information, different evaluation of threats caused by the pandemic, you know, direct health costs versus indirect harms to the economy. So Republicans get their information from different places than do people on the left, right? And so conservative sources of news and information generally speaking, compared to left-wing sources, downplayed the threat of, of COVID. Also, Republicans and people on the right tend to have less trust in scientists and in big science, Science Incorporated. They tend to have less trust in liberal and moderate sources of information, and they tend to engage in less consumption of left-wing news media. And they also tend to have more economic conservatism, so people on the right were much more concerned about the consequences of economic lockdowns. So anyway, do you know what managing up means? So I just thought it meant uh, trying to you know, keep the people above you in the, in the business hierarchy on track, but apparently it means to, to align yourself with your boss's priorities. So how to manage your boss, how to manage up. Try to understand your boss. Don't try to transform your boss. Build on strengths. Focus on strengths, on things that matter. Find out what works. Build your relationship. Avoid being overloaded or having your time wasted and build a bigger network. So I'm reading all these links on how to manage your boss. Successfully manage your boss to boost your career. So your boss is the most important person in your job. You're mutually dependent. Bosses need your cooperation, reliability, and honesty. So support your own boss. 
support the person that pays your bills. Make sure your priorities are consistent with organizational needs, right? So I notice with, with under-owners, they tend not to be terribly concerned with their priorities aligning with their organizational's organizational needs because they just view their job as a way to get a paycheck. I was trying to find the term for an employee who just does tasks without even asking first. Well, if they're doing appropriate tasks that are in line with the boss's priorities, then you're managing up, supposedly. But if you're doing tasks that are not in alignment with your boss's priorities and even endangering your boss's business or welfare, then you're not managing up. So to manage up, you need to recognize your boss as the most important person at work Anticipate what your boss needs. Clarify what your boss expects from you. And your ability at small talk makes a big impression on your boss. Small talk is the foundation for almost every type of conversation. Small talk is light, informal conversation. You need to be good. Such soft skills are crucial in business, especially with your boss. So small talk shows that you communicate well with others that you'll be a good representative of your boss, that you show empathy and support towards other people, that you listen actively. So in a normal conversation, you shouldn't be talking more than 10 or 20 seconds without checking in to see if the other person is on board with you. That You have respect for them, proactive, you're strengthening your relationship with them. So to conduct small talk with your boss, you should prepare, you should ask questions, you should praise them, authentically behave as though you like them. Actively listen, mirror their nonverbal behavior, and smile. So you have to understand your boss, understand their goals and objectives, their pressures. Yeah, like, I don't know about you, but I tend to be incredibly self-centered and just think about myself most of the time. But you're going to do much better at work when you spend a little time thinking about the pressure that your boss is under, understanding what are your boss's strengths and weaknesses and blind spots. Look, now, how does this fit in with working for your brother? Right, so I've been working for my brother, and so I want to align myself with, with, my, with my boss, with my brother's uh, objectives. So I'm not going to say things that are going to offend customers. I'm not going to do anything that's going to offend customers. I'm not going to do anything that's outside of uh, my assigned task or, or where I'm competent. So I'm coming in fresh to, to a situation where I don't really know much about this, this line of work. So I guess my first, first goal with working for my brother is first do no harm, right? So first of all, I was spraying with Roundup and make sure I didn't uh, do, any, you know, do any harm. Yeah, he, he lets me do some live streaming while working, so he's not uh, terribly on top of me. But I put a priority on my boss. Like uh, my, my primary purpose while I'm working there is to do the tasks that he assigns to me. And then when there's a break between tasks or when I'm just so hot, I mean, it's like stinking hot here. It's like 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It's uh, like 30, 31, 32 degrees Celsius, 50% humidity. Yeah, I'm not hitting on the Sheila's though. Okay, I did I did hit on one. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't help it. She was just so entrancing. But I did it in a very professional understated manner right so I, I couldn't help talking with her she just spoke so eloquently she was so intelligent and 
she was arty and she was a little eccentric and uh, we, we had so much to talk about with, with regard to Africa and, and how can we turn Africa into a, into a first world industrialized uh, affluent uh, progressive modern uh, society so how could, I, how could I turn away from that but in general no hitting on Sheila's at the work when will I be back in Sydney? So sometime between most likely January 5, January 6. Have I ever been to New Zealand? I have been. I've not just been to New Zealand. I've been several times. I lived there for about nine months when I was three years of age. And my stepmother's from New Zealand. So I've been to New Zealand a minimum of three times. And I spent probably about a year of my life in, in New Zealand. And New Zealand is absolutely gorgeous. Just stunning. So managing up means being proactive, creating or controlling a situation by causing something to happen rather than responding to it after it has happened. Proactive. Yeah, but that's not managing up. That's being proactive. Okay. Seven smart ways to effectively manage your boss. So anyone with experience in managing their boss, do you know what it means to, to manage up? So we spend most of our waking hours at work. And if your relationship with your boss is a bad one, then it makes your life really tough. So I've had a lot of great bosses who I got on with wonderfully. And it just made me so happy. And I've also had a lot of horrible bosses. And that just made my life miserable. And... I'm, I've been struck as I talk about my, my work situations in the past with various friends, how pretty much all of them would not put up with the kind of abusive bosses that I put up with. So I remember I, I used to do a podcast uh, about 20 years ago with uh, a director named James DiGiorgio, and he recognized that I, I had all the personality traits of the abused husband, that uh, I would just put up with endless amounts of abuse and then go write in my journal about it. We'll go tell my therapist about it. So I think it comes from being smacked around quite a bit as a kid. I kind of got habituated to abuse. And so people can kind of smell that on me and that they can get away with abuse. At least until I've uh, grown up, perhaps, over, over the last few years. And uh, I don't believe I would allow myself to stay in an abusive relationship anymore. In the country, hard skills, ability, and honesty are what bosses want, not small talk. Well, if you can't do small talk, I mean, that's going to be awkward, right? Because how do you have good, stable relations without some small talk, right? I mean, just to start the day. So, yeah, I think uh, small talk is pretty important. Unless you're in a homogeneous community and small talk about family, friends, people in common is useful. I think everyone uh, everyone feels at ease small talk. Like if you get into an elevator with strangers and just engage in a little small talk, you'll feel happier. Right? You'll feel happier being around other people. All things being equal, you'll feel happier being around other people. You'll feel even happier if you're around other people and have some verbal interchange and that's almost always going to start with small talk so I don't know how one can be happy and not be competent at small talk now 
that doesn't mean you engage in a lot of small talk. All right. So there are limits. So I've had bosses who, are, who did not speak very much, but there's still some time for small talk. How on earth can you be happy if you can't engage in small talk? One of the things I love about being in Australia is how easy it is to talk to people here. I just feel much more connected to, to people here. Like I feel on the same wavelength and I've, there are more people that I can just open up with and talk. In, in Los Angeles, right, half the people speak Spanish. Uh, half the people don't speak English. So I'm not going to be able to talk to them. Right? We, we don't have much in, in common. But in Australia, I feel, I feel connected to, to pretty much you know, 80% of the people I meet. And, and the conversation is just so easy. It's like, hey, mate, how's it going? Yeah, I feel at home. I feel, feel at ease. And it makes you happy. Right? Being around people makes you happy. And talking with people makes you happy. And so having things in common makes it a lot easier to, to talk to people. But I, I get on the bus here, I get on the train, I walk down the street, I go into the shop. And these are all endless opportunities to, to connect with people. And it feels good, man. It just feels really good. Luke is never coming back. Glad to see he's happy. I am happy and I am at ease. Like I went to the hairdresser. I had a lovely chat with the hairdresser, not to cut my hair, but to, to get a to get buy a gift certificate. And then I went to the bank and I had a lovely chat with the bank teller. And then I went to the chemist and you know had a nice little chat with the chemist. And all these customers are coming in to the garden center and I'm having nice little chats with the garden center. Like my brother has never had an angry customer. Like he's never had like some nasty angry customer and he's had his nursery for close to 40 years. Right? 40 years never had an angry customer. I mean, this is small town, regional Australia, regional, regional Queensland, and uh, it's just a, it's a happy place. Like, I haven't, I haven't encountered an angry person in Queensland. I haven't encountered an angry person in, in Australia since I've been here. I mean, there are angry people in Australia, but I think they're much more rare than than America because I think Australia is much more homogeneous, and so that makes it easier uh, for people to get along. Okay, this is Johnny Anomaly. I have to take a. I have to take a break. As being a factory for, for interesting new ideas, for true ideas, and I think for the most Be right part, back. this is true. If we look at chemistry departments, engineering, physics, we're getting a lot of really interesting insights from places like Harvard. But you know, there's been a trend for at least five, ten, maybe fifteen years on American campuses of radicalization. And, I had a guest speaker at a class about five years ago at Duke University named Jonathan Haidt, a political psychologist who studies political polarization and tribalism in politics. And what he argued, because he was really concerned about what was going on in American campuses, is that universities should choose one of two goals, truth or social justice. And it's not that those are incompatible. It's that sometimes they can be. If you're choosing a particular ideology over the truth, then that's going to lead to certain results that may be good from the standpoint of your ideology, but may or may not be, be true. What I'm going to do is make a stronger claim than Jonathan Haidt made, and that is to say that even if universities are committed to the truth and not some other ideology, 
They still need intellectual diversity. Okay. And I think political diversity okay. to, to achieve Thanks, that. Johnny. So Thanks for that, Mike. So, uh, do, do, you, do you get my sense of awe at people who've never been fired and never lost a friend? I mean, have you ever lost a friend? Like, I'm in awe at the stability, the psychological health, the, the groundedness of people who've never been fired, never lost a friend. How long will I be in Australia? Uh, another, another three weeks or so, but I'm seriously thinking of, of moving here. You should play some John Mearsheimer. <laughs> Ricardo, have you ever lost a friend and have you ever been fired? Yeah, being around you, people like yourself makes you happy. Yeah. Oh, Ricardo says, this is how I felt when I moved away from D.C. to the South. Jim Bowden says, now that I know Luke, I can't trash him anymore. <laughs> yeah. How many people do I miss from L.A.? Yeah, I miss quite a few. But there is not the sense of ease and connection walking, walking down the streets. Okay, so yeah, I think Ricardo and I, we have our differences, but we also have tremendous similarities. And I think we've both been fired a few times. And I think we've both you know, fallen out with people. And we probably both burned bridges. Thank God we haven't burned bridges uh, with each other. Now, oh, man, the sand flies. I am so like bitten I, I made a mistake i went off the main trail went on to this special walk off the mount, main trail and just got beat, bitten alive and i know i shouldn't itch them but I, I can't help it sam hyde did some interesting videos on this topic he said he used to think that just being smart and capable at your skill set is the one thing you need and how you lose a lot of opportunities because you can't communicate well yes that's absolutely right right i, I don't know how you can be happy I don't know how you can be successful for 95% for of people unless you are at ease with small talk. And what makes small talk easier is when you have things in common. I'm going around Tenham Sands and like everyone knows my brother. And they immediately recognize you know, similarities in how we speak. Like we have a similar you know, dark sense of humor. So I went into the, went into the Australian post office to, to pick up a package that I had mailed to, to my, my brother's address. And uh, I, I just go in there and uh, you know mention my name. I'm saying with my brother, and they they immediately grok that I, I've got the same sense of humor as my brother. So I, I walk around streets here that all the names of the names. There's a street name for my mother, a street's name for my uncles, a street's name for my auntie, a street's name for the mother's side of my family. There are streets named after my family here, right? But we we've, we've been here for for seventy years. Blood and soil, Tenham Sands nationalism. Yeah, it feels good. And yeah, everyone gets along. I haven't seen any nasty fights and no overt displays of, of anger. It's, uh, it's pretty sweet. And you can go to the beach. I mean, even in Sydney. Sydney's a big city, biggest city in, in Australia. You can go to the beach and you can leave your computer there. You can leave your iPhone there. Go for a swim at the beach, come back, it's still there. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm seriously thinking of moving here because I just feel happier here, right? I, I just feel happier here, feel more at ease here. There's, 
you know, easier human connect. And there's mateship. Like in Australia, you'll do anything for your mates. So you form, you know, quick, tight, strong bonds. Like met one bloke and, and he invited me on a walkabout. And we went on a walkabout for four hours with a bunch of other blokes and one really hot Sheila. And like we went walking for four hours. You really get to know people when you're walking with them for four hours. Like that's mateship. The right talks about all the refugees going to Sweden, yet their women's soccer team is all too homogeneous or, or blonde. So, yeah, America has never been as homogeneous as England or Australia, let alone as homogeneous as, as Germany and uh, Japan. Ah, managing up. Right? If you spend most of your, your waking hours at work, you better have a good relationship with your boss and your other employees. There's something about the big city that grinds on people, causing constant anxiety. You only notice it when you leave and you suddenly feel more relaxed. Yeah, I, I think there, there's something to that. There's, particularly in L.A., there's a huge crime wave. What happened to the California dream? I still, I still love California. Like, I still love living in, in Los Angeles. I, if I move to Sydney, I'm not fleeing California. I'm not fleeing from Los Angeles. It's not like, oh, the crime wave is driving me out. The, uh, the racial animosity is driving me out. No, I'm very happy there. But uh, I'm feeling a new happiness here. I'm feeling a, a level of calm and happiness and connection that, that I, I experience in Orthodox Judaism. You know, on Shabbat and, and you know, when, when I gather with Orthodox Jews. But... You know, riding public transport in LA, I don't like being the only white person on a bus. Right. And I don't like the huge explosion in crime and the massive homeless encampments. Now, it's not so awful, right, that, that it makes, you know, LA unlivable, but I have noticed, you know, quite a few Jewish acquaintances, people in my social circle who've been, yeah, moving out from LA, moving out from California. How much of the joy is coming from spending time with with family? Yeah, probably a third. But uh, it, it's also just walking down the street. Most of those escaping California are more from the Bay Area than L.A. I'm not... Yeah, I think statistically you're right. But as far as the people I know, they're escaping L.A. and primarily they're moving to Los Angeles. And... It's also, it's new and exciting here because I haven't been in Australia for seven and a half years. So I'm learning, you know, new phrases, new, new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking about things, new ways that people express themselves, uh, new laws, new applications of laws, new, new media. I was really dumbfounded when I found out the U.S. was at the peak of its homogeneous level in the 1960s, not the 1950s. Well, I'm not sure that's correct. I think... Uh, I think that probably the 1940s was the was the peak, but still, the the rural rural America is highly homogeneous, and it's the it's the big cities that that have become increasingly diverse, and it's similar in in Australia as well. So Sydney and Melbourne much more diverse than regional Australia. The regional Australia and regional America outside the big cities is pretty much the same. Same 90, 95% of the majority population that it's always been. It's just that the cities are changing fairly dramatically. So, 
managing up. Do you know what managing up is? Because I sure didn't. Managing your manager isn't hard. Just do these five things. Well, communicate. Yeah, talk, right? You have to be at ease with, with talking with, with people. So, what's Glib Medley saying? God is Australian. The, the most famous book about Australia is called The Lucky Country. And it came out in 1964 as a book by Donald Horn. And it is not, that thesis, The Lucky Country, is not a compliment to Australia. It's essentially saying that Australia has been lucky. Not that it deserves to be lucky or that it's earned its luck. So the title, The Lucky Country, has become a nickname for Australia. It's generally used favorably but in the sense that it was used in the book, it's negative. So the book references Australia's natural resources, its weather, its history, its uh, inheritance of the British system, its distance from problems in the world, and, and its prosperity. So Donald Horne wrote the book to portray Australia's climb to power and wealth based almost entirely on luck rather than the strength of its political or economic system. How many of your new neighbors have been sent to the COVID camps? No one. Now, there are pretty strict uh, COVID restrictions there. There's overall a, a stricter... There is more government interference in your daily life in Australia than there is in America because in America, freedom is the number one value and in Australia, fairness is the number one value. So, so the Australian emphasis on fairness brings about much more government intervention into daily life to try to ensure things that are fair. So, for example, in many states in America, you have common property provisions in divorce settlements. So the property that you bring into the marriage, you get to keep. And then the property that you accumulate during a marriage is basically split 50-50. The Australian system is just an equitable distribution, which basically leads to 60% of your of the the couple's financial assets goes to the to the woman right and there's no no uh, property that you get to just keep to yourself because you had it prior to the marriage so uh, parents don't have any rights to see their kids in the Australian family law all right so the only rights are for kids all right so the Australian legal system with regard to family law works on the philosophy of what's in the best interest of the kid, which is incredibly amorphous. So essentially from critics of this, of this approach say that it just allows family law courts to do as they want, right? Just an equitable distribution of financial assets, or from a critical perspective, you'd say, well, that just allows the, the court to do what it wants. And as far as who gets custody of the kids and access to the kids, the court decides on the basis of what's in the kid's interest, which is incredibly amorphous. So the, the court has seems to have more power and more intervention into daily life than, than in America. So you'll find more government intrusion, more, more government regulation into your daily life here in Australia as compared to America. Yeah, we're, we've, got, we've got a flourishing stream here, 11, 11 live viewers. So uh, Donald Horn, in his book, The Lucky Country, he lambasted 
Australia's political and economic weakness. He lambasted its lack of innovation. So America is a much more innovative country, generally speaking, than Australia. Its lack of ambition. Americans, generally speaking, much more ambitious than Americans. I mean, Americans are much more ambitious than Australians. Yeah, so it is 5.28 p.m. for me right now. And we'll get the SBS World News in about an hour. So I like the SBS. That's the Multicorti channel. And then there's the ABC Queensland News at 7 p.m. So got a question here. Who's your new favorite Australian celebrity that you weren't aware of until moving here? I can't think of any... Aussie celebrities that I wasn't aware of before I moved here because during COVID I started reading all these books on Australia and remember on my show the last two years I keep playing that song I still call Australia home so this must have been latent in me about moving back to Australia and I didn't even realize I just thought I was coming here for for a holiday but I was reading all these books on Australia during the COVID lockdown so I've been reading the Sydney Morning Herald on basically a daily basis for the for the past year. So there's not much happening in Australia that I'm not aware of. So Queensland does not have daylight savings. So the birds start chirping. <laughs> they start chirping before 4 a.m. Right? It starts, the, the, the sun starts coming up. It's light here by about 4.30 a.m. So yeah, that's my laptop. <coughs> So I will vote for the Conservative Coalition. So in some places, if I was in Queensland, it might mean the National Party. But uh, in, in Sydney, it mean the Liberal Party, which is centre-right. So I've been discouraged by the populist parties like One Nation for their, for their idiotic approaches to COVID. So I've, I've lost a lot of respect for political populism in, in the United States and in Australia and in Europe due to its moronic response to COVID. So there are times when the experts are right and the simple people are wrong. And then there are times where the simple people are wrong and the experts are right. So I don't automatically side with either the experts or the, you know, just the, the popular crowd. So with regard to COVID, I'm leaning more in the direction of the experts are right and the populists are wrong. Am I familiar with Friendly Geordies? Yeah, that's a YouTube channel. He makes fun of people. So a little bit, little bit familiar. So yes, that's my laptop. Friendly Geordies, big influence on young center-left Aussie Zoomers and uh, millennials. So we're going to have a federal election here in the next six months. So I'll be essentially supporting the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, but there are very few politicians that that I like. So I don't find Scott Morrison you know, particularly impressive, uh, but it's either him or, or the Labour Party. Will you be celebrating Christmas with your family or will I go on a Shabbat walkabout? Both. I will be celebrating Christmas with my family and I'll probably go on a, a Shabbat walkabout. So kind of get to see aunties and uncles and cousins and nieces. Is my town no, but but there was a seventh. I did did run into a Seventh Day Adventist doctor today. So Seventh Day Adventists are really big in the health profession, and there are a surprising number of churches in town. There's a Seventh Day Adventist church in Gladstone. So when I moved here in 1984, I I went to it for a few months. 
and uh, there's a there's a big Pentecostal church near here, and they've got a pri an elementary school, and they're starting a high school. So, we got we got a cricket bat. So, we were just playing cricket with with tomato steaks. Official experts, well. Being an official expert doesn't mean you're automatically right or wrong. So sometimes the official experts are right. Sometimes the censored experts are right. So sometimes the bloggers are right, and sometimes the New York Times journalists are right. right? There's no, there's no group that is always right. Yeah, there's, Pentecostals are growing in Australia, so it's kind of the happy, clappy celebration style of worship. Luke seems very different. Giddy energy. Yeah. There's, uh, uh, what can I say? When I got here, my first morning here, just walking around the beach, I experienced a, a sense of comfort and ease. When I came here in 2014, I was thinking of moving here. But then I would have been running away because at that time I had over, over uh, 50000 in credit card debt. But now I don't have any credit card debt, so I don't have to run away from my situation. Nope, I'm still on modafinil every every morning, still taking my modafinil. I, I loaded up on modafinil and crystal light lemonade, crystal light orange drink, and uh, my, my favorite chewing gum. So I only bought like three pairs of underwear. Still no fap. Yep, no fap for eight years, right? Yeah, I do feel giddy. I just, you know what it's like to just walk down the street and like people and be, you know, at ease with people. And, uh, oh, g'day, mate. How's it going? G'day. How are you? Still on the beef organs, yep. Still on the beef organs every morning. Six, six beef organ capsules. So, The Lucky Country, it's probably the most important book about Australia. Yeah, so I'm taking beef organ capsules, and my, my brother said, uh, you need to take uh, beer capsules. Uh, f find, find some capsules that, that contain the essence of a cold beer. Because I, I hate the taste of beer. Absolutely hate it. So, so Donald Horn, writing The Lucky Country, he's really saying that Australia's climb to power and wealth has been based virtually entirely on luck. It's not on the strength of its political system, not on the strength of its economic system, which he regards as second rate. So he also lambasts Australians for their lack of innovation, for their lack of ambition, for their Philistinism, for their obsession with sports, Philistinism in the absence of art. Uh, Donald Horn viewed Australians as being complacent and indifferent to intellectual matters. He also comments on Australian puritanism, conservatism, particularly in relationship to censorship and politics. So the opening words of the book's last chapter, where the title comes from, Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. Wow, I didn't didn't bring water with me. So here. 
I want to play Johnny Anomaly. Okay, come on, Johnny. So how diverse are American campuses? Well, we have pretty good data on this. This is from the National Association of Scholars from a few years back. And it gauges the ratio of Democrats to Republicans in a variety of subjects. And you'll notice that no subject in American universities has more Republicans than Democrats. Now, I don't care about Republicans and Democrats per se. This is a kind of useful proxy for political diversity, which is a proxy for intellectual diversity. But notice that at the top, we have engineering, where it's a ratio of something like two to one. Then we get to economic, chemistry, five. So... As soon as my brother comes back, I'm out of here, mate. We're, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get a few overs in before stumps. I've got a great cricket wicket in the backyard, so I just love my cricket, mate. Love my cricket. Okay, Australia is a second lucky country run by second-rate people who share its luck. So his book, Lucky Country, is an indictment of 1960s Australia. So says, while other industrialized nations create wealth using clever means such as technology and innovation, Australia does not. Australia's economic prosperity derives from its rich natural resources and from immigration. So Donald Horne observed that Australia shows less enterprise than any other prosperous nation. Am I going to join a local sports team? Well, I'll probably join a local uh, bowling club. There's a Jewish, great Jewish uh, bowling club in Sydney. And uh, yeah, a lot of sporting, sporting clubs in Australia. Very sporty nation. So in a 1976 follow-up, Death of the Lucky Country, Donald Horn wrote, when I invented the phrase in 1964 to describe Australia, I said, Australia is a lucky country run by second-rate people who share its luck didn't mean that it had a lot of material resources. I had in mind the idea of Australia as a British-derived society whose prosperity in the great age of manufacturing came, came from the luck of its historical origins. In the lucky style, we have never earned our democracy. We simply went along with some British habits. So Donald Horne was cr critical of uh, the lucky country phrase being used as a term of endearment for Australia. He says, I have had to sit through the most appalling rubbish the successful, the successive generations misapplied this uh, phrase. Why does your work uniform logo feature a soccer club? Ah, because I was part of the Boyne Island Tenenbaum Soccer Club. Bits. So did you uh, did you sponsor the club? Did the Tenham Garden Centre sponsor Bits? Yeah, yeah. So the Tenham Garden Centre sponsored the Boyne Island Tenenbaum uh, Soccer Club. Now, I was the president. My brother was the president of BITS. Once. Once. And he also ran for parliament. So my, my brother is a very respectable man. And I'm not going to say or do anything that could tarnish that respectability. So that's why I'm keeping everything very kosher on this show. Very respectable show. You ready for some overs? Okay. We've got some cricket to play, mate. I'll talk to you later.